The Australian Financial Review. In January, Australian Financial Review senior writer Neil Chenoweth, fresh from holidays, went looking for a story. And he found one in the most unlikely of places, the website of the Tax Practitioners Board. The TPB is pretty harmless apart from the 80,000 tax agents that it regulates because it's the only policeman that they have. What Neil found while trawling the internet that day would trigger one of the biggest crises in PwC's history. One of the world's big four consulting firms, PwC, is struggling to control the fallout of a scandal in its Australian business, where tax consultants used information gained while working with the government to benefit its clients. It will bring into question the firm's global reputation and ethical standards, as a trove of internal emails in the Australian business were made public strictly confidential basis. Please be discreet. Most off the record. Please treat as rumour and speculation. It would also culminate in the resignation of its local chief executive, Tom Seymour, and spark the ire of the country's treasurer, Jim Chalmers. You know, this is a shocking breach of trust, an appalling breach of trust. Chalmers said the consequences stretched beyond the fate of the accounting firm, which won half a billion dollars in government contracts over the past two years. As a government that wants to be consultative where we can, this puts that sort of consultation at risk. And so it puts the quality of economic decision-making and policy-making at risk as well. Welcome to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray. Today, Neil Chenoweth and professional services editor Edmund Tadros on the tax scandal engulfing PwC. How the story broke, who was involved, and what happens from here. It's Thursday, May 18. This has been one of the biggest business stories of the year, and last week, PwC's local boss, Tom Seymour, stepped down after the release of those extraordinary emails, which in our introduction were read out by AFR staff. But Neil, let's go right back to the beginning, to before you found that report on the TPB website. Who is Peter Collins and how did he come to be the man at the centre of this tax scandal? Peter Collins was something of a legend at PwC. He was head of international tax and in December 13, when Treasury was looking to assemble a group of tax experts to advise on how to write the government's new anti-avoidance tax laws, which were part of the OECD's so-called base erosion profit-shifting measures. When they were looking for someone to advise them, he was one of the handful that they asked, how do you design this uh, law? Now, I've got to say, it was an unconventional appointment. Collins had been involved in a string of tax controversies which were just beginning to hit the courts. They included the huge loans that energy companies like Chevron had loaded onto their Australian operation to reduce taxable income. It was called debt dumping, and it was worth huge tax advantages. And an $88 million loan structure for Orica that the federal court found was tax avoidance. So that is an unconventional appointment, but we probably should say here that those were civil matters and no improper behaviour was alleged. Yeah, so it wasn't just Collins, but PwC had this aggressive tax culture. And and how much did these schemes cost uh, taxpayers? Try $10 billion. That's how much the ATO was won back in tax settlements from schemes. 
that PwC advised on. And it's over a period of years. But if you then think about appointing Peter Collins to advise them, if you were kind to Treasury, you'd say, well, it was the ultimate poacher turned gamekeeper play. And a less generous assumption would be that they let the fox into the hen house. Now, while he was advising the government from December 2013 up until early 2018, he signed three confidentiality agreements, which kept him from revealing the information which was supplied to him about what the government was planning in these tax laws. What Neil's leaving out is that his work in uncovering a lot of these tax schemes added extra pressure on the government to actually start to take action to close off these loopholes. And so from here, we go to a 2015 Senate inquiry into tax avoidance. I declare open this hearing of the Senate Economics Reference Committee's inquiry into corporate tax avoidance and aggressive minimisation by Australian companies. Testifying and sitting next to each other are Mr Collins. Uh, Mr Seymour, Mr Collins, for Hansard Record, could you please state your name and the capacity in which you appear? Peter Collins, tax partner with PwC Australia. And his boss at the time, Tom Seymour. Sure, Tom Seymour, managing partner of PwC's tax and legal practice. Fantastic. And it's one of those things where when you look back on it, it's full of irony and unintended sort of... I guess you'd call it dark comedy. I have the utmost faith in the ethical standards of the people we employ. Um, and, 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 and I think that we have a great contribution to make um, to how we make Australia's tax laws work better. And in fact... Collins, he was also um, telling the committee with Tom Seymour, who was then the head of tax at PwC, about how much they were worried and cared that all of their clients did the right thing by the taxpayer. In Australia, we have an anti-avoidance provision. So if, if there is an, an arrangement that is done for a sole or predominant reason of avoiding Australian income tax, it is not effective and we certainly would not advise a client to do that. And that all of their partners are ethical and they would never, they would never give advice that went against what the community expectations of what big companies should pay in terms of their tax. No, I certainly um, would be um, shocked and hugely disappointed if any anyone in our firm was breaching laws. Now, clearly, we've got 5,000 employees in Australia. Can I, can I say every individual employee abides by every law in the land? But what Tom Seymour didn't say at the inquiry was that by this stage, tax partners under his supervision were at least a year into a project aimed at helping as many US tech companies as possible sidestep the new tax laws, which the man beside him, Peter Collins, in the inquiry, was also helping the then government to design using that information. So that tax inquiry in 2015 came as there was a spotlight on companies, and particularly big multinational companies, not paying enough tax in Australia. But the government was just about to do something about that based on the advice of experts, including Collins. Neil, what was then-Treasurer Joe Hockey's plan to tackle this problem on budget night in May 2015? I call the Honourable the Treasurer. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I move that the bill for the 2015 budget now be read a second time. Tonight, I am speaking directly to you... That night, for the first time, Joe Hockey flagged details of a multinational anti-avoidance law, known as MAL, which was designed to catch companies cheating and bring tax revenue into the country. Tonight, I am releasing the details of a new 
tax integrity, multinational anti-avoidance law. This will stop multinationals using complex schemes to escape paying their tax. Politicians often say that they're really committed to cracking down on tax avoidance. But right there, there was a real feeling that the then government was serious. Under this new law, we will catch companies cheating and they will have to pay back double what they owe plus interest. This mile, this anti-avoidance law was going to be a major hit, their way of balancing some of the scales. And we now, now know that minutes after the budget was handed down, at least 22 US tech companies received an email from PwC with advice about how to navigate these new Australian laws. They had already drafted a work plan that they could use to head off this new tax. And that work plan was based on their confidential information. It was called Project North America. And by January 2016, they had 14 new clients and $2.5 million in, in fees. And of course, that was just for starters. It's since come to light this week that Google, Apple and Microsoft were among those contacted on the budget night. And it, it's not known at present whether they adopted these, these schemes. But no one was aware outside of a selected group. Collins and PwC's project had gone under the radar. But they didn't go under the radar for long. At some point, as PwC started winning new clients and their tax advisory business was booming, this got noticed. Ed, when did the alarm bell start ringing for the tax office? It took a while for the alarm bells to start ringing at the tax office when the new tax law had gone into effect. What they couldn't quite figure out is whenever there's a new law, they expect the advisors to come up with ways that sort of sidestep and ameliorate the effects on their clients. What they were really surprised about was the speed at which all of these companies that had been targeted by this new law, the US tech companies, were coming up with restructures essentially that meant that the law didn't apply to them. And it all comes to a head around September 2016 when Deputy Commissioner Mark Conzer from the tax office, he meets with PwC and one of its clients and um, they have a conversation about this new mall uh, tax law. And the client effectively says to uh, Mr. Conzer, look, um, it's a great law, but we've restructured now and it doesn't apply to us. And he does not react well to this. So Mark Conzer storms out of the office and says, I'm going to audit your client. But not just that, I, I want all of the correspondence to all of your clients. Well, that precipitates something of a confrontation because PwC comes back and says, this material is all covered by legal professional privilege. You aren't allowed to see our correspondence to our clients. And that's where it stays for some time. And then at some point in 2017 or early 2018, the ATO tries a different tack. It says, okay, we're not looking for stuff that is covered by legal professional privilege, but we're looking for correspondence between PWC partners, which cannot be covered by legal privilege because there is no client. And It's this trove of emails which the ATO appears to receive somewhere in early to middle of 2018, which shows a completely different picture of what's going on. The tax office now has a good picture of what has gone on, as you just said, but yet nothing happens for quite a long time. Neil, talk us through the timeline of this story. Why did it take so long for us to find out about this? 
It's a five-year mystery. Why did it take so long for these emails to come out this month? What we can say is that by September 2018, the ATO had uncovered these emails which showed confidential information being shared. And it's not clear what happens after that. The Tax Practitioners Board becomes involved and the TPB is an organisation which no one has ever heard of. The TPB is pretty harmless apart from the 80,000 tax agents that it regulates because it's the only policeman that they have. The ATO refers the matter to the TPB in July 2020 and then there's some to and fro and then the TPB opens an investigation of Peter Collins in early 2021 and then later opens an investigation into PwC, the firm, and that's where it lies. And then in January this year, I came back from summer break looking for an easy week, as you do, and and I trolled the TPB site. And what I found on the website that day would mean that there was no easy week. Instead, it would trigger this tumultuous three-month pursuit of this story. It's the accounting firm, the industry and the government that was awarding PwC hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts came under scrutiny. So, Neil, you're back from holidays, you're looking for something to do, you're on the TPB website and you discover this explosive report on its findings against Peter Collins and PwC. Explain in more detail what those findings were and how did PwC respond when you asked them to comment? The TPB had published a decision that it came to late in last year that Collins had shared confidential documents which set up proposed legislations and policy positions. He shared them with other PwC personnel, both in Australia and overseas, quote, who in turn disclosed the information to clients or potential clients. They deregistered Collins for two years. And they'd also sanctioned PwC, the firm, for its role in the affair. They also instructed PwC to run courses to educate their partners, how to manage conflicts of interest. Now, these were relatively light penalties, particularly for PwC, but at the time, there was no other sanction that the TPB could give. That was the, it was either that or close PwC down. I went to PwC for comment, and they came back and said, look, we acknowledge that there will be findings against one partner, and We deeply regret that this isn't who we are, and um, it related to one incident in 2014. And what happens here at the partnership level is we understand that Tom Seymour has explained to the partners who read Neil's story and go, what's happening here? He's explained to the partners the same thing. Look, this is one guy. He's not at the firm anymore. It was one incident back in 2014. And If you think of the firm as having, um, these people are all from tax, so Peter Collins is from tax, Tom's the former head of tax, now CEO. The other parts of the firm, they take that on face value, it's the CEO, and they don't really think too much about it. You know, it's, it's a classic bad apple scenario. 
One effect that it did have, though, is that at Senate estimates, the TPB is invited to attend, and Labor Senator Deb O'Neill and Green Senator Nick McKim both question the chairman and CEO of the, the TPB how the investigation came about. And critically, late at night in, in this hearing, one of the last things that comes up, Deborah O'Neill asks the chief executive of TPB, Michael O'Neill, how many people are involved. So how high up in PwC did this go? Uh, Who was complicit with Mr Peter John Collins? At what level were the executives of PwC? uh, There were partners and staff, uh, both in in Australia and internationally, who were involved in these discussions from the evidence we have available to us. And he says, well, we've got evidence that 20 or 30 people were involved in the emails. And how Uh, many, Mr O'Neill? From the evidence we have, maybe 20 or 30, Senator. 20 or 30 people. 20 or 30 people are evident on the dock. And that's a real bombshell. That testimony made, made headlines at the time, but what wasn't known was that subsequently Senator O'Neill put in a question on notice asking for the emails that were involved in the sharing of the confidential information to be released to the Senate. And that request was a sleeper that just stayed there for the next two months. And that request would become very important as the story evolved. Ed, at this stage, the spotlight really starts focusing on PwC Chief Executive Tom Seymour. How does he respond? Well, he responds in a punchy way. On March 9, so roughly three or four weeks later, he's at our the AFR Business Summit and he's doing a one-on-one interview with um, senior reporter Jennifer Hewitt. And towards the end of that, she asked him about the Senate evidence that 20 to 30 people were involved. Was this just a gross failure of process? And how, how can the government be assured this type of thing won't happen again? So, so first of all... Mate. And essentially, he, he gets quite legalistic. He says, look, that's not what they specifically found. What, what the, actually the representative from the TBB said was there were 20 to 30 people involved in giving advice around this. I can't say whether they were involved or not in the leak. Um, but, but actually there was no findings at all that they were. And he downplays it and then he uses these words that sort of come back to haunt him. The issue for us is there's a perception issue and that's because we didn't have the right management tool yep. in place. And I was there on the day and I was surprised that he responded in such a way, um, especially calling it a perception problem. He may have thought that, but you don't expect him to say it out loud and that caused consternation in Canberra. But Again, look, it still hadn't sort of gotten ahead of steam yet. So a lot of firm, they just think, look, this is one of those things, the crisis has kind of passed. And then nothing more really happens for several months. Then Senator O'Neill's um, sleeper request to get these emails, um, there's a bit of a tussle behind the scenes between the tax office and the TPB, which has the material about what can be released or not. They decide not to release the report. So the report that informed the TPP's decisions, but they do release roughly 144 pages of emails, give or take, heavily redacted with everyone's name gone from it except Peter Collins is released. August 6, 2015, Peter Collins wrote, Treasury was crystal clear on this and the politics of delaying the rule for the dirty 30 seems impossible. There is no sympathy for this group in Treasury or government or the ATO. Controversy treasure trove. 
And it shows extraordinary detail of how Collins gets onto this confidential committee to design a new tax, immediately sort of convenes a global group of PwC partners, starts passing information around. October 9th, 2014, source unknown. Because it was provided to us on a confidential basis, I ask that you don't circulate it beyond us or discuss it outside PwC. September 3, 2015, Peter Collins wrote, Agree there is an opportunity to own this space because my sense is that we're ahead of the curve. January 6, 2016, source unknown. In total, we expect, based on fee estimates that we have agreed with clients, that revenue from this first stage of the mile projects will be approximately 2.5 million. They discuss how it's confidential information. No one ever says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. January 6, 2016, source unknown. The team have been very busy over the last couple of months and we are assisting 14 clients with their efforts to comply with the MAL. Brand defining clients. We got this outcome because we were aggressive in telling these relationships they need to act early, heavily helped by the accuracy of the intelligence that Peter Collins was able to supply us. And this is the sort of the beginning of Project North America, which eventually leads them, as Neil mentioned, minutes after Joe Hockey announces these measures in the budget, pressing activation and telling all of these key clients, they're called the Dirty 30, the big US tech companies that were you know, doing things with where they were operating to reduce their tax obligation in Australia, targets all of them with, hey, we can help you out with this new law. And all of that detail with names redacted are in these emails. They're quite extraordinary. May 11, 2016, Peter Collins wrote, we have a meeting with the ATO and Treasury yesterday in relation to the diverted profits tax proposal in the budget. Summarised below are the key points from the discussion. The key plan is to use the UK rules as a blueprint. We had known that the request for the emails was there, but it took an excruciating long time to emerge. When they were finally published by the Senate committee, we had approval to run the story about two minutes before the paper went to bed on the Tuesday night. It was just one of those rare things where it really comes down to the wire. Then our story is published on the Wednesday and goes live at about 5am. And then all hell breaks loose at the firm and in the government. So all hell is breaking loose on the Wednesday. This is just over two weeks ago. But by the Friday, Tom Seymour is still standing firm. He says he won't resign. And then last Monday, he has a change of heart. He announces he will step down. So Ed... What was behind his decision? So there's a series of partner communications. So if you think of um, the firm, it's a very flat structure, roughly 900 partners, and there's a group of about a dozen executive partners who are in charge, and Tom Seymour's ahead of that group. Our article about the emails comes out on Wednesday, May 3. That afternoon, Mr Seymour sends an email out to the partnership, but once again assuring them this is still an isolated incident. And then on the Friday... He holds an emergency partner meeting where he reveals that there's six to eight partners who received confidential information, and then there's another 20 to 30 who are in receipt of emails dealing with the material. But he says that second group, the larger group, did not know that it was confidential material that was being discussed. And then he drops the bombshell, I'm in that second group. So he's in the emails. And the implication is he's known about this since the very beginning because he's been on the emails all along which he hasn't mentioned to any of the partners since this first broke in January. Then Tom announces, um, look, I'm not stepping down, but I'm open to partner feedback. 
And he also says, um, we're going to do our own independent inquiry into all of this. And we go into the weekend. And partners go into the weekend with these bombshell details. What happens over the weekend, and there's two versions of this, is um, one version is that basically global gets involved. So if you can imagine the Australian operation is its own entity, but it is a an effective franchise, so they don't have to do what Global says, and usually it's all gentlemen's agreements kind of thing. Global gets involved. They send out a few executives, one of whom is their general counsel. She spends the weekend going through the material. And there's also, simultaneous to this, is partners from around the country, email trails, phone calls, all trying to get their heads around what they'd been told on Friday by their CEO. Monday, sort of mid-morning to early afternoon, we start to get the sense from various contacts that something's going to happen. And then just after 5.30, we have it confirmed that Tom Seymour will step down as CEO. He'll still remain at the firm. And the head of assurance at the firm, Kristen Stubbins, will become acting CEO. Two days after Mr Seymour steps down from the leadership role, two more partners also stepped down from the firm's executive leadership. In some respects, Mr Seymour stepping down from CEO role is a big move for him and the firm, but really it's just the end of the beginning and it's the start of the firm starting to acknowledge the sheer scale and seriousness of this crisis. And this week, PwC appointed former Telstra boss Ziggy Swakowski to lead an internal review. The government is also considering whether to fine the firm. What do you think, Neil? Does this scandal change anything? I think the government has some very tough calls to make here. From our soundings, there's widespread indignation about what PDWC has done, what it told the Senate in 2015, and how this has played out. So it's up to the government, though, to say, There is a feeling that there should be some financial punishment for PwC, but what form that would take, that's still being, I think, uh, decided. The easiest one would be to put a slow ban or a shadow ban on further government contracts, because PwC earned $530 million from government contracts in the last two years. There's also, I think, the fact that it was Apple and Google and Microsoft who were also testifying at that 2015 corporate tax avoidance hearings that that they weren't involved in uh, any aggressive tax structures in Australia. And they're the people that, among the people a month later, that PwC was targeting with this new anti-mile scheme. So that's going to take some time to, to work out. Can the government do without PwC? We will see. Yeah, we're hearing that if you're a conservative bureaucrat, would you appoint PwC to a new contract or extend them? Probably not if you've got the threat of Senate estimates hanging over your head. The other thing is parallel to all of this is the Labor government has been on a push to reduce the number of contractors and consultants being used throughout the bureaucracy in Canberra. And they've got inquiries going on into how to do this. And they're wanting to bring a lot of the skills back into the public service. So in some ways, that kind of assists them a little bit. And there's a, there's a parallel consulting inquiry going on that's looking at this. So that's, that might become a bit of a proxy inquiry into this PwC leaks as well. The other thing that's going on is the firm has to make some really big choices. The expectation, I think, of, um, of a lot in people in government is that anyone involved in this directly has to leave the firm. 
to sum all of this up, what we have here is the nation's largest consulting firm by revenue, PwC, effectively taking confidential information from its largest individual client, which is the federal government, and using that information to stymie the goals of its largest client and make money from it. I would say this is the biggest crisis the firm has faced in Australia in its entire history. So PwC today is at the centre of this scandal which continues to expand and to enmesh more people. And the questions that we're going to be looking at going forward are who was involved, not just in that five-year period from 2013 to 2018 that Peter Collins was receiving confidential material, but what happened afterwards? What was happening in the five years that PwC knew that the ATO had discovered this uh, breach? That's what we're interested in, what we'll, we'll be pursuing. Well, Neil and Ed, thanks for pursuing this story and we'd love to have you back on the podcast to talk about any developments. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks both. the other big stories we're covering this week. The leaders meeting in Sydney next week of the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue has been cancelled following the decision of US President Joe Biden to call off his trip to Australia. Biden was set to join Anthony Albanese and the leaders of India and Japan for the Quad Talks, but had to pull out because of ongoing debt ceiling negotiations in Washington. The Quad leaders will instead meet on the sidelines of the G7 summit in Japan over the weekend. And Apple has made another big move into banking by turning the iPhone into a payments terminal for small businesses. The US tech giant has partnered with Westpac and Tyro to offer the service in Australia for the first time. The move will challenge banks' revenue from selling or hiring payments terminals an area that Block also competes in via Square. While Westpac says it will make banks more money by expanding mobile payments, the sector is on high alert about Apple's intentions in financial services. Thank you for listening to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray with Neil Chenoweth and Edmund Tadros reporting today. The Fin is produced by Alex Gow and Lapfan. Fiona Buffini is the executive producer. Our theme is by Alex Gow. If you like the show and want to hear more, follow us wherever you get your podcasts and consider rating and reviewing us as it helps others find us. See you next week. The Australian Financial Review.